know, we were talking about concepts and you mentioned the word philosophy. Uh, some people will say that Buddhism is a philosophy. But if you look at the history of the actual philosophy of people who call themselves philosophers and wrote books on philosophy and all of that kind of stuff, you can see, wait a minute, Buddhism not that. You would have to actually change the definition of philosophy to get it, uh, to get Buddhism included in it. But you can see why some people would make that confusion because basically philosophy is the art of answering questions that have no answer. That's what philosophy's job is. Because if the, philo if the question had an answer, it would already be uh, either a law in the government being taught in uh, grade school, or it would be implemented by business to sell you something. But philosophy, in fact, is the wrestling and continue wrestling with uh, questions that really don't have any answers to them. And part of the reason why philosophy is like that is because many of the questions that are being asked are absolutely spot on ridiculous. The questions themselves are ridiculous and therefore there is no answer. An example of a ridiculous question would be, is there a God or not? Or another ridiculous question is the question of free will. And the reason why these questions don't have an answer to them is because they keep within a particular context or they're thinking within the box. The problem with philosophy is that the box and most of the box was constructed around Christian uh, questions. They're trying to answer quest uh, questions in Christianity to either prove the mythology of Christianity true or trying to prove the uh, mythology of Christianity is false. And that's what philosophy has always been about. It's trying to find answers to questions that are kind of irrelevant questions to ask. And when you frame philosophy in that respect, you can see that the teachings of the Buddha is not at all philosophy, because the questions uh, uh, in that regard <clears throat> with the Buddha is that we've got absolutely definite, spot-on questions, simplified and direct. And they have to do with human experience and human concepts and thought. And it also has a direct answer. Unfortunately, the direct answer, um, how to say it? We can get the direct answer easily, but we have to keep getting it over and over and over again because we go back into the old habits that of, mm -hmm. of the mind to go back into suffering. So the question then, um, with Buddhism uh, is basically uh, what is suffering, what's the nature of suffering, and how do we come out of it? And in that regard, we recognize uh, that much of the philosophy of Buddhism has come from West, from the West, because they've already been into philosophy, so they might as well grab philosophy and try to shove it up the butt of Buddhism, too. And so you'll find on Reddit a lot of people asking philosophical questions where really all the questions should be very practical because it's a very practical practice. Not philosophical at all. An answer to, um, uh, to that would be, um, or looking in that one question, is there a God? The answer to that question is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. That people can sit on the uh, uh, a park bench or um, uh, the stage of a major university uh, auditorium, and they can argue over is there a God or not, 
And generally, they won't change anybody's opinions. People have already got their opinions formed. And so if the audience is full of Christians and they invite an atheist in, the atheist is not going to convince anybody. If the audience is full of atheists and the Christian comes in, the Christian is not going to convince anybody. I've, I've actually been at a symposium, and it was in Louisiana in the Bible Belt. Uh-huh. And there was an atheist, and then there was a, a Catholic. And it was, it was the, uh, the most one-sided. There were a bunch of people from a church there who just kept standing up and saying, and inviting the atheist to come to church. <laughs> Those were the questions from the audience. That, that was it. That's right. This is what I'm getting at. So you, you, you've seen that proof. Yeah. Um, now, within Buddhism, we would not ask the question, does God exist? We will ask the question, in fact, uh, differently, that do I exist? And in what form do I exist? And do I exist in the sense that the same I that exists in this moment is the same I that exists in the next moment? Okay, can the eye go through changes or is it stable? And this is worthy of an investigation, not an argument. But it's not worthy of the investigation the way that many people do it. They, they ask a, a philosophical question and the philosophical way of asking that question is who am I? But if you look at that question, that question has a whole lot of assumptions built into it. When you, when you ask the question, who am I, you're almost saying that this I that we're asking about is something permanent. Yeah. Okay, but if we look at it from not that perspective at all of who am I or does God exist, but rather what is suffering? What is dukkha? What is it caused by and how to come out of it? Only then we begin to see all uh, suffering exists when there is one or something to suffer. And that when there is no one to suffer, then there is no suffering. Mm And so that way we can recognize, wait a minute, Buddhism is not at all a philosophy. It is a practical method. Almost the distinction between philosophy and Buddhism would be philosophy would be the architectural drawings to a house. But Buddhism would be boards and nails and hammers and saws. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, um, okay. Yeah, I think um, I'm trying to think of like a, a science analogy, but you know, between um, like metaphysics and laboratory science, maybe, or. Okay. Um, uh, something like that. I think that's where most, you know, <clears throat> most people in the philosophy side tend towards this metaphysical reality or precisely to where <clears throat> Buddhism is real physics. We have our own telescope. <laughs> we have our own uh, satellite. We have our own uh, <laughs> um uh, tools and techniques to look at things to see how they really are. To where meta, just like physics, metaphysics is not interested in how things are actually. Metaphysics is interested in how things are that can't be seen, mm-hmm. which means they're they're making it up. Um. An example of that then would be that real physicists are um, kind of in a club 
that the main physicists uh, know each other, that uh, most of the big satellite, uh, excuse me, the, uh, uh, the big radio antennas, as well as the big telescopes, all the people who operate those things are in a kind of a club together. And so if uh, one guy needs to have a star looked at from different angles all over the uh, planet Earth, he can get that done. Metaphysics is much, much more like religion in the sense that every metaphysical guru is making stuff up, trying to get a following, trying to make a living off of it, and is generally in competition with other metaphysicists. He also probably is not all of that well-educated. I know he might have, in fact, gone to seminary and got a Ph.D. in uh, Bible studies or something, but that um, it's not the kind of degree that works with physics the way that physicists work. They call themselves metaphysicists, which means that they're above reality. And so I don't hold a lot of um, hope for metaphysics. Metaphysics is a whole lot closer to religion than it is to science. And you could also go to say that metaphysics is, in fact, philosophy also. Because the metaphysicists are trying to answer questions that are not well-formed and they don't have good answers to I think the the primary question would be would be if I were to boil it down to one thing if everything that has ever been experienced um, from the perspective of the experiencer is made of consciousness everything you see touch smell is made of from your perspective consciousness that nothing has ever been experienced outside of consciousness and science hasn't proven that that anything exists outside of consciousness because no one has ever had an experience that's taken place outside of consciousness. If that makes any sense. Well, yes, it does make sense, but we have to go a little deeper into it to recognize that, wait a minute, there is a need to define consciousness. Because while it is true that um, everything that is conscious to a human has a source from, uh, let us generally say from the outside in the sense that the rupa that the eye sees, with the sights we see, the sounds we hear, uh, um, the words that our mother spoke to us when she was giving us a spanking, the kinds of things then that impact us, um, all come from uh, our sensory awareness. So therefore, all of our memories that are stored are stored inside the ability of our sensory awareness. But there's a whole lot of stuff that does exist in reality that is beyond the human sensory awareness capabilities. And that um, in some cases, we can build equipment and machinery to help fill in some of the gaps. For instance, bees can see in the ultraviolet light world so that they can tell easily which flowers have been um, uh, sucked uh, for their uh, their nectar mm -hmm. because the flower changes. Humans can look at flowers off, off in a field and cannot tell the disperses of what part of the field has already had the nectar picked and which doesn't. But the bees can see that. 
Also, we know that some animals can hear at a very, very high frequency. That eagles have extremely long distance sight so that they can be high in the air and see a tiny little mouse move. We also know that um, owls have excellent night vision that humans don't have. So the animal world is just full of examples of uh, animals that have uh, sensory input devices that are beyond the capabilities of humans. So our input is limited. We don't have all of reality as an input. We only have a limited amount. Now here's the next part of it is, is that when it goes into storage, it doesn't, um, that is, it's a little bit complicated, but the, the outcome is, is that as we take information in and store it, we don't store it exactly the way that it came in. To look, replay things like a movie. An example is you can watch a movie on your laptop. The laptop knows that movie. It knows every pixel. It knows every sound of that movie. All 100,000 frames of that movie at 30 frames a second, right? And so hundreds of thousands of frames and that computer knows everything and it displays it. You can watch that. How much of that movie are you going to remember? Mm. Not much of it. Yeah. You might be able to replay the movie and recall uh, but recalling, in other words, I've seen this before, I've seen this before, I've seen this before, is different than I can reproduce it out of my own memory for the entire dialogue of the movie. And I remember every word that everybody says, and I can write it down. You can't do that. The human brain is not capable of those kind of memories, but it is capable of doing more when it's trained to take data in. So now that we know that we have trouble with getting data in, we have trouble with remembering the data, or let us say getting it stored, and then when we bring it back up for recall, it's often not the same. So what I'm getting at is, is that most of the constructed memory that humans have is faulty. Another one which is quite interesting, and that is, is that we tend to remember heavy deals and we tend to not remember very light deals. Yeah. Okay, that some things impact us, and because of they impact us, we remember them, but other things don't impact us, and so we don't remember them. Okay. An example would be a child who has a lot of dogs in the neighborhood. There may be five or six or eight or ten dogs in the neighborhood, and they're all over the place. But one dog jumps up on the girl. And now she's afraid of dogs. And she's not there aware that, hey, there were ten or fifteen dogs in the neighborhood that didn't jump up on me. No, she remembers one dog that jumped up on her, and now she's afraid of all dogs. That's how the human brain works. We, we discard tens of millions of small events that don't register, and we uh -huh. keep the really big ones. Now, the really big ones are almost always has an element of trauma to it. So we remember the traumas and we don't remember the good times. I, I saw it. Um, uh, there was a, a scientist who gave like a talk who was working in quantum quantum computing. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, he was talking about things that they were theorizing in that the, you know, the sensory palette of a human being is, you know, so controlled 
by its conditioning over these billions of years Mm -hmm. that it's evolved out of that, that what we actually see and experience, he would equate to a, um, an operating system on a computer versus what's actually going on in the computer. You see what I'm saying? That, that our, Going on in the sense of the programming that is happening above the operating system, or are you talking about all of the interconnections and the hardware below the operating system? Uh, that, that it would be probably the, what I think what he was referring to was the, um, was the computing going on. Like, that our, you know, that our, our, the way that we perceive the world is so based upon our very, on our survival is so survival focused Mm -hmm. that, that the, the spectrums of light and, you know, everything that we're not aware of is, um, essentially he would say that, that objectively, if you could, say that you could see the world objectively but objectively it would look absolutely nothing like what we perceive depends upon what data we're we're receiving yeah we could receive more data or we could receive less data Mm -hmm. and and an example of that is that it has to do with our focus or our, our attention an example of that is a telescope that's pointed in one direction can only see the stars that are in the field of view of that telescope. While there could be a supernova going off on the other side of, uh, and all he has to do is change his uh, uh, camera angle just a few degrees, and now he can pick that up. So that's another quality that humans do is just that we're very, very, very selective at what input we're going to have coming in. Mm -hmm. An example of when the eyes are open, they're only looking in one thing. Now, there's two ways of using the eyes. One is to focus in on an object, and the other way uh, is called gazing. And that gazing is done, um, let us say, uh, the... the farmer who's on this side of the field, he looks up on the field in the, and down uh, away in the distance, maybe 500 meters or so, is the line of trees for the forest. And so he looks up and he gazes at the forest, but he's not looking at any, in, any particular thing. But if something in that gaze field moves, he'll catch it. This is what we mean by gazing. But if he is looking at one particular tree, he's going to miss the movements that are happening over in the bush over here. But if he's just gazing, he can see it all. But humans are not trained for gazing. Mm-hmm. Hunters are trained for gazing. Um, there, <clears throat> on YouTube, there is um, a very... It's actually gotten quite famous. Uh, It's a short video. And in the beginning of the video, the people are instructed to count how many times a basketball does something, how many times it's pushed or uh, how many times somebody holds it or something like that. And so all the viewers watch and they're watching the basketball as it's being placed uh, passed around by four or five people while another person in a gorilla costume walks through that group, raises his hands and waves and smiles, and then walks on through, and most people will miss that guy in the gorilla suit. They won't see him. He is right in their field of vision, and they still don't see him. Why? Because they're looking at the basketball. And that basketball was passed right in front of him. Mm-hmm. And they don't see the ape unless you're looking for it, unless you know this. And then it's so clear, it's so obvious, like, how could I have ever missed that? 
And yet we do because of the way that we focus. We focus on things and then we miss everything else. And we have been doing that our whole lives. And basically what that means is, is that we've been, every child focuses and remembers and is impacted upon with every tragedy that he has had his whole life. While we tend to not to remember the really good things unless they were spectacularly good, like the child will remember going to Disneyland or he might remember a particular birthday cake or birthday present. But he's more than likely also going to remember falling out of the tree. He's going to remember mom giving him a spanking. Mm-hmm. Okay, we tend to remember not just the, the incident with the visual uh, memories of it, but we remember the feelings. And that yeah. feeling base then that is selective and generally negative is what we grow up with and that becomes our habit base of feelings we tend to feel the way that we're used to feeling and we tend to feel the way we remember that we felt and we tend to remember feeling uh, the big event kind of feelings and we tend to not remember uh, the nice feelings an example of that would be um, even for meditating that they don't remember the very pleasant experiences that they had unless it's a peak experience. It's a very, it's, it's out of sight bliss and then he'll remember it. But just the, uh, they don't remember those. Yeah. Oh, we yeah. Don't that happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> I've still got one up here I'll never forget. But, you know. So, this is actually the information I'm giving you now is very, very handy to understand that <clears throat> basically the, the human being is not in suffering all the time. This is an important point that I haven't been making uh, uh, quite well enough, I think. Because the students, when they hear the teaching of the Buddha being Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda, they say, oh, dukkha means this is how we are all the time, but maybe someday with a lot of effort, we can then get into permanent dukkha naroda. It's, it's sort of like a permanent great big light switch. It's almost like building a power plant. Uh-huh. That before the power plant is built, it's dark and it's dukkha. But once we get the power plant built, now we've got bright light. We've got red. Yeah. We've got, okay, so... This is kind of way that people have uh, uh, the idea of meditation to where, in fact, people are in every day. People will move back and forth between Dukkha, Dukkha, and Naroda. If someone is in Dukkha all the time, they will be burned out. They will be suffering. They will be miserable people. Nobody wants to be around them. These are the kind of guys that get locked up in one kind of place or another and given pills to slow down, settle down, boy. (laughs) But they burn and they burn and they burn. Most people don't do that, especially once someone starts to meditate. Once they begin to meditate, they begin to recognize, if they're looking, they begin to recognize, wait a minute, the good feelings I get out of meditation are the same good feelings I've been having all my life already anyway that there's nothing really special about meditation other than now we have the ability to decide whether we're going to be in Dukkha or Dukkha Naroda to where before it was a matter of chance. And the chance wound up being in Dukkha more often than needed. That we wind up worrying about things that we don't need to worry about. I think that the biggest challenge of the path is discerning the subtleties of the language yourself like that that is it it's taking and how skillfully the teacher can give you you know the words you need to to point you in the right Mm -hmm. direction to a place that you have to go yourself You, you have to figure out yourself um, also, and also yeah. you're right. Also, Buddhist teachers will uh, 
bring out big examples to make a point. But when we use too many big examples to make the point, the students will get the idea that uh, everything is a big deal. <laughs> to where, no, we're making a, uh, we're making a point, uh, it's a big deal, possibly to get the student to remember, because we tend to remember big deals and we tend to forget about the, the, the small stuff. Uh, and so ordinary examples don't really register like great big examples. But it's important for us to recognize that, let's use the word void mind for this, but let's define what we mean by void mind so that we'll understand, um, because many people, when they hear the word void mind, they'll think it means void of thinking or voiding, void of doing anything almost as if they were comatose and, and almost like they were on life support at a hospital. Okay, this is not what we mean by void mind. We mean void mind is the mind that is in this particular moment free of self, or another way of saying it, free from suffering. And this is a natural occurrence. Children do it a lot. The natural state of childhood is joy with punctuated with trauma from time to time. The kid can have a, play, uh, a tree house and really like that tree house and enjoy that tree house, but he doesn't think much about the tree house. But if he falls out of that tree house, he will remember the falling out of it. Even if he forgets all about how much fun he had in it before he fell out of it, perhaps weeks or months of fun, right? <laughs> So uh, here we have now weeks and weeks of fun in a treehouse versus 10 seconds of falling out of that treehouse. And the falling out 10 seconds actually now overweighs the weeks and weeks of pleasure and joy. And that's the way that the human mind constructs things. Yeah. Why? Because much of it has to do with survival instinct to keep us alive. So we remember the tragedies. We remember the accidents. But when things are uh, good, there's no reason to remember all of that stuff. Because it's not dangerous. We tend to remember the dangerous parts. It's, you're right. It's, the whole point about it is this self-preservation instinct, our instinctual ways of doing things. But meanwhile, the child spends a lot of time in pleasure. But as he gets older and starts to go to school, he does more and more things that he's told to do without pleasure. He doesn't keep the pleasure. He starts doing things because he's told to do them and doesn't get any pleasure out of it. So over time, that, that ratio shifts. I would say that in the beginning or for your young childhood, it would be like 80% of the time they're in pleasure and joy and about 20% of their time in misery. By the time the average human grows up, it's going to be kind of the other way around. They're going to be spending about 60 to 70% of their time in worry and frustrations and doubts and, and whatnot. But they do spend uh, 30 or 40% of their time in pleasure, but they're not making note of that. So when we begin to practice Anapanasati, especially Sati, and begin to wake up, Generally, when we wake up, we wake up to see the hindrances. Uh -huh, I see you, Mara. But sometimes we wake up and we wake up to realize, hey, this is a good moment. I'm really having fun right now. This is a good moment. This is, this is great. And so we could wake up right out, right just the waking up into the fact that we were already in a state of pleasure. I think another another subtle thing, though, I'll say, you know, I've had a lot of suffering in my life and I've had a lot of good times in my life, um, I guess. But ha having the self there, 
constantly wants to capture the good times or is self-conscious that they'll end or, you know, or is, uh, you know, the person who can't go out in nature without having to take a picture of every beautiful thing they see. Right. Mm -hmm. They're they're They want to capture, they want everybody to know that they, the self went to this beautiful place and took Mm -hmm. this picture and then they shared it on Facebook and they said, look how great I am. Mm -hmm. I went here. Oh, look at how much pleasure I got when I took this photo. And I captured this and I'm, Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's now it's part of me. (laughs) And I went to this great place and it's another feather in their cap and, and they can't, they were, they never enjoyed it. I mean, they never, they never enjoyed it fully. Right. You know. Exactly. Yeah. While you're, while you're futzing with your cell phone and or your camera trying to get a good shot, you're not actually enjoying the view, say a sunset or whatever, or maybe a, uh, a, a valley that you're overlooking from a, a, a hilltop. Uh, and not only that, but that real sunset or that real um, valley scene that you're looking at has depth, it has reality, it has um, um, an absolute impact upon you. <laughs> I think that there are something that's going deep inside that ha- may have to do with our proprioceptic systems. So that we're standing on the ledge, looking at the valley below, perhaps this is at the Grand Canyon, and a great sense of awe comes because we're in that situation. You take a photo, a digital photo that you can look at the photo. You can look at the photo right there. You can still be standing in front of the Grand Canyon and have your photo of the Grand Canyon. That photo of the Grand Canyon does not have that sense of awe. It does not have that sense of presence. Now it's just a photo. But they, and what they're trying to capture, though, is they're trying to capture that sense of awe by taking the photo. Exactly. What's really going on is, is that they're getting neither. They're neither getting that sense of awe right now while they're fussing with the camera, and the camera itself is not going to capture that sense of awe. I can go in my backyard and get a better sense of awe than looking at this picture on my cell phone. Exactly. <laughs> <It's meaningless>. <laughs> going, this, going outside, and I, man, going outside is the best. And I go outside all the time now. You're, you're singing to the choir. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you. I'm sitting, in my, I'm sitting on my back porch all the time. <laughs> But, um, but this just the pure sense of going out from inside to outside, you know, that's that's everything. I mean, that, yeah, <clears throat> okay. Well, let's continue on with that concept of the void mind that the okay. void mind is actually a common occurrence, it happens on a regular basis. Bhikkhu Buddhadasa would call this a little nibbana, if it's a pretty good relaxation, if we can just sit down and relax. I would say that perhaps this will happen on a regular basis so that most of the people who, uh, let us say that they get out of work, maybe not everybody at the same moment, but within a few Uh, moments. Everybody is leaving the building at five o'clock or whatever, and they're getting into their car. Before they uh, start the engine, after they sit down in the car, that's going to be a little Nibbana moment for almost half or maybe more of them. Just sitting down in the car. The day's work is finished. And you can just imagine that you just sit out in the car and just, and then you start the engine. You had just a little, ah, the day is finished, the job is done. 
Okay. So this is a very, very natural experience that we humans have, but we don't pay much attention to it. Well, this is exactly the very experience that we want to have when we catch the mind wandering away. It's very much like the, the mind in hindrance is like the body in, uh, in the building at work. And when we and when we recognize that now is the time to go home. <laughs> Let's go home. This is not time to work anymore. And so we throw that uh, out. And then, like sitting in the car, we take a little Nibbana moment. Wow, it's so nice to not have to think about that job anymore. Or so we've now taken it from the physical doing the job and sitting in a real car into the mental quality of, being in hindrance and coming out of it, and what a relief that is. You can relax. Yeah, complete relaxing. Complete relaxing. But in that way, we're not going into a special magical state. We're not going into this thing that many meditators think of. Oh, that's Nibbana. It's way up there. Oh, enlightenment. It's way up there. No, when you just sit out in that car before you turn that key, at that moment, you're like, you are not carrying that building and the, and the employment anymore. You've dropped it. And that happens on a regular basis. So this, what I would invite the students to do is start to become aware of that. And we're going to do that in two ways. One is in their sitting practice or in our regular practice, when, we, when sati comes, when we wake up, we actually can do an investigation to see, am I already in a state of void mind or not? If I'm not in a state of void mind, then I can easily get myself into a state of void mind, basically by just sighing and relaxing and taking out any of the thoughts that I had. Yeah. But we're no coming need to back be a, to No need to be a meditator. No need to be a enlightened or whatever. Just, just, just relax. Yeah, give it to you. Just let yourself have it. Just, you know? just be. Yeah, let yourself be a kid again. We and when we're kids, we spend most of our time in pleasure. But over time, as we grow up, we do get enough bad experiences, so we wind up building a bunch of bad habits, and so we spend far too much time worrying and suffering and wanting and, and uh, all of that kind of stuff. And we don't pay much attention to the fact that a lot of time we do feel good. Okay. You know that, real quick, going back to, uh, that's what I was going to say about, about philosophers, <laughs> is I think that <laughs> philosophers are inherently unhappy because they they are asking unanswerable questions constantly. <laughs> and if they could just be happy, that they wouldn't no need answer. to ask those questions. Right. That's a kind of a catch 22. If they were happy, they wouldn't be asking those stupid questions. <laughs> hey, who cares? <laughs> uh. Right. So that's one of the ways is the actual practice. But also the second way to do it is more the natural practice that we work with anyway, and that is having sati throughout the day, which you and I have talked about. To become aware, to start becoming awake of what we're doing throughout the day. When we sit down in a chair or when we reach for something or whatever like that, these are points in time when we can have that sati and that uh, often when we do that waking up throughout the day, we should make note that, you know something right now? Things are good. I'm not, I'm not in suffering. I'm not worried about anything. I'm, I'm good. And we begin to see that over and over again. There's many times when we wake up throughout the day that we feel good. And we begin to note that. Because, you see, the natural way of doing it, uh, the way that we did it our, our whole lives, is we tend to not register the good stuff because it's not dangerous. And we tend to rec uh, register uh, the, the 
mistakes, the faults, the foo-pahs, the dangerous moments, the, uh, the birthdays when we don't get what we want, mm-hmm. and things like that. I remember on my first birthday, I don't know why my mom did it, but she got me a Howdy Doody doll. I guess Howdy Doody was a big deal uh, at that time. But giving a four-year-old boy uh, (laughs) who's just beginning to understand distinctions between sexuality and that the girls play with dolls, (laughs) that that was a mistake. But the one who made the mistake was me because I hated it. (laughs) Yeah. Not very many people remember what they got for their fourth birthday. I had a vindictive cousin who hated my, was very jealous of me. And uh, I do remember I got a toy blimp and he, um, as soon as I aired it up, he popped it with a screwdriver. So. How old were you? Four. 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 Right. See, it was, but that was a trauma. That's why you can remember it. (laughs) If he had not busted that balloon, you probably wouldn't remember it now. No, uh, no, that's the only thing I remember. <laughs> okay, so that just proves what we're talking about, that we tend to remember the tragedies and that not only do we remember the event of the tragedy, we remember how we felt. And that becomes our memory base for our feelings. And because of that, over time, we spend more and more time feeling bad and less and less time feeling good unless we actually start doing a practice like Anapanasati to reverse that trend. Mm-hmm. Okay. But Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa says that there are uh, two other ways of having void mind besides the natural way. One is through the practice of jhana, and the other one is through the practice of vipassana. Now, in any of the jhanas, first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana, whichever jhana that you're in, you are already, by the definition of the jhana, you're in void mind. Why? Because even starting with the first jhana, you have rapture and uh, pity and sukha of that first jhana that remains throughout the whole process. So you're feeling good. You're not in a state of feeling bad. So jhana is a natural state where there is no self. The other way to do it is intellectualizing vipassana or beginning to see this stuff directly. This is generally the practice of meditation that does not include the jhana. So Mahasi method and Goenka method and those kind of things that are practiced pre-jhana is just 100% vipassana. And because of that, they call it kind of dry insight. It's because basically the mind is getting insights, but the mind is not really fit for work. It's more like the ordinary mind that we had but we still are able to make insights. We can see things. But if we can combine these two properties of the jhana and the vipassana, that's when it really has some strong impact. So if we can get the mind in the first jhana, which is free from dukkha, free from suffering, and we get ourselves into a state of sukha, which is actually the opposite of dukkha. When we get ourselves in this state of satisfaction, now we're capable of being in that state. We're woke up. We're feeling good. And now a thought comes that's going to pull us out of that. A bad feeling comes or a bad thought comes when it does because we're already um, in a state of first jhana, which means the mind is really fit for work. That's when we can see it. Mm -hmm. So where if we are just in ordinary state that let us say that we're feeling good and then that bad thought of that bad feeling comes, we we were asleep when the good feeling was there. And then when the bad feeling came, we still weren't fully aware of it. And so we move back and forth between good feelings and bad feelings, but we're not really watching. We don't really have that 
frontal cortex in fully in full gear. So getting that mind fit for work and getting it into a state of satisfaction, now when dukkha comes, we can catch it. And we can catch it early enough that it doesn't drag us out of that state of sukha. And so we learn how to maintain that state of sukha. Yeah. I, I remember you gave me some notes one time to be, to be like a, I forget what you said. Like once you get into first jhana, you're like a king who's just satisfied to sit on his throne, you know, or, mm -hmm. you know, he's got no worries. And that really I can't works. argue with that. No worries. Exactly. <laughs> <clears throat> the emperor that, of his own pile of dirt is normally the way that I would say it, but the king oh, on his yeah, throne, sure. Uh, but I think that that confidence, um, that confidence, man, that that's so important. That shraddha, is that what you called it? Yes, uh, that's the Pali word for it, shraddha, that confidence, which basically means now that we have to have enough sati to wake up to see that we can feel good. Because mm -hmm. remember, the feeling good is easy to forget. The feeling bad is easy to remember because of the instincts. Yeah. And so we're uh, now going to practice with the intention that I can do this. I can prove I can do it. I know I can do it. I just did it before. And I'm now getting up a history of I can do this. I remember those good times. Intentionally remembering that we can do this. And so we now are beginning to develop or build up a memory system of good thoughts, good feelings, uh, success in practice, etc., that now begin to uh, change or shift the balance between mostly our emotional states are of bad feelings into shifting it now to where now uh, if you just kind of uh, Put your hand in a bag and pulled something out of it. Let us say you had two grains or two different kinds of um, uh, uh, beans in there. They were about the same size and you just grabbed it in that bag and that you pulled out a bean. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. The likelihood of you pulling out a bean is dependent upon how many beans in that bag are of that kind. Let's say you had brown beans and green beans. Mm -hmm. And you've got a bag that's two-thirds brown beans and one-third green beans, and they're all mixed together. If you go in there and you pull out one of those beans, most likely two-thirds out of the chances it's going to be a brown bean, right? Right. But now let's go and say we're going to start in intently adding new green beans. Mm -hmm. And we add more green beans and more green beans and more green beans. But as we're adding them, we're not mixing them necessarily with the old ones. We're just kind of piling them in. So that yeah. they're now they're the latest stuff. They're the new ones. And if I'm not stirring that bag up then these new green beans that I'm putting in will be more likely the one that's picked up. Right? right this right. is exactly the way we want the mind to operate. That this old bag of brown beans that we've been carrying around, that we've pick, been picking up instinctually, but have not ever bothered to put any of the green beans in the bag. But now, as a meditator, we're beginning to remember, this was good. I like this. And I'm mm -hmm. going to remember how good this feels, okay? And so we start putting a lot of green beans in that bag. Or <laughs> now we're... Uh, <laughs> and this is the way. So now the next time uh, when we pull a feeling out, the likelihood we're going to feel, pull out a good feeling rather than a bad feeling. So that we could shift that balance. Yeah. This yeah, is why right. shraddha. This is where that whole quality of the shraddha. 
is because we will remember. That's that first green out of the bag. I know I can do this. I've done it before many times. And, and taking taking responsibility for doing it too. Mm -hmm. for, uh, you, you just have to do it over and over again. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh -huh. One new green bean at a time. <clears throat> One new green bean at a time. And the more green beans you put in there, uh, the more likely you are to cover up all the, all the old brown beans, as well as uh, just the probability, the raw probability, even if they're mixed, you've got a better chance now getting a green one than you do a brown one. Which means that any particular mind thought moment that occurs, that green or brown bean will be the next thought that comes up. Is it going to be a wholesome thought, a green thought, or is it going to be an old brown thought that has, uh, I want, I need, I got to have, um, I don't like, those kind of things associated with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the way that we're practicing now, then, is a combination of jhana and vipassana. So we're not going into the high jhanas. The problem with the higher jhanas is, especially by the second jhana, the thought process has been still, which means now we can't do any conceptualizations. Mm -hmm. About the best thing we can do is just enjoy the second jhana because it's quite enjoyable. But it doesn't have any, because, you know, there's no green beans now. There's no brown ones. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so there's no adding new green beans to it. But if we're in the first jhana, now we can think our way through this. We can recognize, yes, this is good. I can intentionally in first jhana put green beans in that Sankara basket. Yeah. Yeah, first jhana. Even though I can, I, I can, I could always get into into the other ones or at least I thought I, you know I never really knew I, I knew that I had gotten pretty deep into jhanas I couldn't tell you if I was in th third jhana or fourth Does, jhana or for, past the know. first jhana it doesn't even matter Yeah, and not only that but um, the first jhana is the one that takes the most effort because that's when we actually begin to control the mind yeah. uh, in the sense that we're going to choose which thoughts we're going to have. Are these going to be wholesome thoughts or unwholesome thoughts? So that means that we're working primarily just with green beans because we're making sure that the thoughts that we have are, are wholesome thoughts. And so while we're doing that, that helps that bag. Now there's going to be some ups and downs in there. The, uh, the, the situation would be that people can become confused. And by that confusion, then they just remember all the bad times and they don't remember the good times. Right. Yeah. They almost forget about it. It's almost like here I am a meditator. I'm adding all of these green beans and now I have an automobile accident and now I've lost it. Or even easier than that, somebody on Reddit asked a question that we don't have an answer to, we become confused, and now we've lost the progress that we've made, or we think we've lost the progress that we've made. But if we just go back and start practicing again, then that confusion uh, is just, you know, another brown bean that was added, no big deal. But if we stay confused, and we still continue to adding those more brown beans, I'm confused, I'm confused. And there's many different ways of getting confused about practice. One of the ways is how much effort to put in. Yeah. Another one would be that the students never hear about some of the qualities that they need to put into practice, and so they're not even practicing with a... Um, <laughs> Let us put it this way: They're rolling down the road in a car that doesn't have all four wheels. <laughs> in the end, for me, it's like the 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 best moments that I've ever had while 
anything that I'm proficient at. Let's say like uh, I, I, I make videos. So mm-hmm. when I get into a really good flow state making videos, I'm, uh, you know, that my mind is probably outside of meditation. It's the most single pointed my mind's ever been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Congratulations for you noticing that. Because a lot of videographers, they, they get really one-pointed and concentrated on doing their uh, uh, their video, and they don't even know it. That's that's the difference, is that, um, is that, is that I used to view it as an empty space of time, right, or, or, or a means to an end, whereas now it's the thing to be celebrated in itself is or it's just the thing you i'm allowed to fully fully enjoy it you know (laughs) it's fine it's going away but also the end is going to the means is going away and the end is going away and all of it is it doesn't matter so just have fun Mm -hmm. (sighs) yeah all right it was good talking to you, Tomorado. I'm glad. Oh, one thing. Why don't we finish this video and then we can talk about something else. So I'll turn the video off. Okay. And then I got something else I want to talk with you about. So we'll yeah. see you. Let's do it.